following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Short Circuit, Clifford, Ghostbusters, The Breakfast Club, Age of Ultron, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Get Smart, Small Wonder, Terminator 2, The Matrix, The Shawshank Redemption, Flight of the Navigator, Stranger Things, Back to the Future 2, 2001, The Space Odyssey, Ready Player One, One Million Years B.C., Star Trek, and Red Dawn. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or an AI war simulator program that has the spirit of somebody's, a scientist's dead son inside of it. Uh, I'm your host, Luigi, and with me as always, is my co-host. A new co-host every week, unless I've got a returning co-host who is climbing for the top spot in uh, being the co-host with the mo-host appearances on Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Jason Kerubia, welcome Jason. Thank you, thank you for having me. I, I'm going for the high score, Louie. I'm yeah, definitely going for the top spot. You are like Matthew Broderick playing Galaga. You're going for that high score. Uh, do, you, do you know that you have some stiff competition with Conrado Falco. I do. I do. And also, I want to get that high spot, and then I'm also going to put ASS as my initials, just so everyone (laughs) knows it was me. (laughs) I think what I'm going to do, I think I'm actually going to try to get both of you on a podcast sometime, and I think the perfect movie for that is the Super Mario Brothers movie, because... Conrado brings it up almost every time I have him on. You and I have talked about reviewing it multiple times. So I think like I'm going to try to book both of you for a big like crossover uh, cage match podcast to duke it out for who is who's who has who has the most appearances on RVD because the other one is dead. <laughs> I'm down. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so fight to the death um, cage match. But uh, we are not talking about Thunderdome today. We're not talking about the Super Mario Brothers movie today. Jason, what movie are we talking about today on Robots vs. Dinosaurs? Today on Robots vs. Dinosaurs, we're talking about the 1983 Cold War classic War Games. That's right. War Games, uh, directed by John Badham, starring Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy, Eddie Deason, uh, and a few other people. Um, <laughs> oh, and, and, and uh, the wonderful Dabney uh, Coleman. Can't forget him as well. Dabney Coleman, of course. Um, so, uh, Jason, why don't you tell the listeners, um, give us like a quick breakdown, a quick synopsis of War Games, like what it's about, um, and uh, just like a really quick synopsis, and then we're going to do lose big three questions about this movie. Yeah, so War Games came out of the beginning of the end of the Cold War, and it pretty much was the height not, I wouldn't say the height, but, but it represented the height of the paranoia of the mm. Cold War. Kind of that fear that we had about what we were becoming and fear of the uncertainty of, of nuclear annihilation. And it's one of the, f- one of the few films that was created, um, like many others, that really told, 
talked about the flaws of of nuclear missiles and nuclear weapons and robotics and computers and removing the human element out of war. Um, this movie is about a, uh, a young high school student um, named David Lightman, played by Matthew Broderick. Uh, he's what we would consider a hacker by today's scenario, and I'm not sure they had given that term into, into pop culture yet. Uh, no, nobody really says the word hacker in this movie, and I was surprised by that. Exactly. And the uh, the, the character, uh, David, uh, has a friend uh, played by Al Hishihi named Jennifer. Uh, Ali Sheedy um, does a great job of of being a, a good friend and ear to listen on, but the both the two get kind of enwrapped into this nuclear war scenario where David accidentally um, dials into a, a NORAD supercomputer and inadvertently uh, antagonizes the computer into a game of thermonuclear war. Uh, and we'll talk about the beginning, middle, and ending of the film, but but the stakes are pretty high because mm-hmm. what appears to be um, a simulation for David and the rest of the world to the war- to the computer is indistinguishable from reality. And uh, it it's a it's a great film that talks about how we should be cautious of removing humanity from um, our technology. It's really, really interesting. Well put. You said that um, it kind of, this movie kind of feeds on our, our, that, that cultural early 80s fear of um, nuclear war and like all out, all out war with a foreign power that also has nuclear capabilities. Uh, I would say it also um, kind of feeds into like it's a combination of that and our late 80s fear of automation that that became like really, really prevalent in pop culture, especially in the late 80s, early 90s. Right. We had the films like Gung Ho come out, which uh, which we had. Uh, it was it was a, a uh, it was about technology and in and, and cars and and uh, culture. Um, but but at the same time, it was talking about how how the human element was being removed. And, and we should probably go back to some of that. Uh, mm-hmm. But the Cold War films were all about the the 80s and 90s whether you're talking about like just james bond films in general but um in 60s and 70s of course but but like red dawn comes out the next year after this film which is about a group of students uh who actually get ter- like uh, get launched into an invasion uh from from uh, soviet russia and they have to survive in the united states um with this invading force um it's interesting you bring up Red Dawn because when I I, I had actually never seen War Games when I was watch, uh, when I was watching it I realized I had never seen it and the movie when you when you suggested it for the podcast the movie that I was confusing it with my mind that I had seen was Red Dawn and the, the I went, while I was watching it I kept waiting for like like the real invasion to happen I was like when did they, when did the high school students start fighting fighting them off like that's what I remember about this movie but the movie I was remembering was Red Dawn interesting that it came out only one year later it's kind of like a like a deep impact Armageddon situation almost right where they're like like you can you can tell that the screenwriters the like the people involved in making the movie grew up with a lot of the same influences and the same fears and this like thinking about the same things in our culture right Right. It's like two like parallel thinking. Yeah. The two sides of every coin, you know, one, one was the upside, one's the downside, one's the paranoia, one's the protection. And, and, Mm. and this movie 
kind of like Dr. Strangelove that came out in the 60s you know, by Stanley Kubrick. It talks about that fear of the bomb and, and that paranoia. That movie, of course, doing it um, very satirically. Um, but there's a lot of other other 60s uh, uh, films that, that talk about you know, what happens, uh, the, the fear of nuclear war bringing us to the, to the urge. But, it, I mean, in the 90s, we have movies like Crimson Tide, for example, which is basically mm-hmm. war games but on a submarine. Uh, and yeah. uh, Failsafe was like a made-for-TV type movie that came out, which also talked about, which is very similar storyline to Nuclear War, like two men in a bunker you know, on the button. Um, you know, that nuclear standoff, you know, an accidental, accidental nuclear missiles being launched. Um, and actually I did some research and it actually happened a few times. I remember recently, I don't know if everyone got, there was a, um, in 2018, there was like a miscommunication with, under the Trump administration, they sent that blast text message out saying to everyone, you know, to duck and cover basically because of, of an incoming, you know, missile attack. Mm-hmm. But in the eighties, in the late seventies and eighties, this actually happened a few times where there was communication errors sent to you know, defi- defense areas. You know, saying that there was incoming missiles, and then and then you know, thank goodness we had the human element evolved that would allow us to you know, second guess the computers and make sure that we're not following blindly, you know, orders. Um, mm-hmm. You know, basically basic input outputs uh, of of these decisions. Yeah, that um, that misunderstanding, if we're being generous, in uh, 2018 in Hawaii, um, the I'm gonna I'm gonna find an article and link to it in the show notes. But the explanation for it is actually kind of terrifying. It was that the tech had um, a, like a drop down menu, like one of those things where you click on it, like on a you know like on an Apple menu in your upper, upper left hand screen if you're using an Apple computer, where you click on it and you have a drop down menu. And then you drag your mouse down to the thing you want to select. Apparently, um, missile missile launch alert was like the item above what they wanted to click on, but the because it was a drop down menu, they accidentally clicked on the wrong one. <laughs> oh God! And that's why we had that missile scare. I'm gonna find like a, an article that explains that in a little more coherence, but um, it just goes to show you like how much we're just on the razor's edge of people getting scared enough to launch missiles. Oh my god! You know, at the slightest provocation or over the smallest misunderstanding. This this movie, I mean, it it has the ser- it opens with the seriousness of it, you know, mm-hmm. with the two men in the in the bunker, the missile silo. But then it, it transitions to you know, it, it kind of introduces the theme throughout the film. But it has that. It's go- I keep going back to that one scene where they have the tour going around the oh, uh, yeah. the the NORAD, and they say, "Go ahead." push a button and she pushes a button. It's like, Oh no, you're launching a missile. Oh my gosh. And she's like, no, just, you're okay. Just kidding. It's just a false alarm. It's just a joke. Like it, it's like tongue in cheek, how close like the, the world is to nuclear annihilation. And we still are, you know, that doomsday clock, which calculates, you know, how far we are. Uh, uh, was it uh, 10 seconds to midnight? What is the, the, the term? Um, yeah, that, that sounds right. To, to, to nuclear annihilation, you know, the, it, it, we're, we're there, you know, it, it's just changed forms. You know, the, the players are no longer United States and Russia. It's, it's, there's many more players now. Yep. That is uh, actually one of my big three questions that I wanted to ask. So this is a good time to introduce Lou's big three. Cue the music. You've heard the music. Um, I'm going to splice it. 
um, actually, Ryan did record a new one. I don't, let me see if this is it. We got to produce him some music with it under the background. Yeah, yeah, I got to like actually. I don't. I do. I, can you? Can you? Can you make some music? Can you play some music? Maybe oh, get I your don't brother have, to do it. I don't have GarageBand right now. Yeah, maybe my brother, and my sister can do it, but I don't have GarageBand right now that I can do it. No. Um, all right. So lose big three. Just you and me with lose big three. Here we go. Lose big three. Number one. Uh, at the beginnings and then the beginning scene when we're seeing these two Air Force personnel uh, in a in a bunker and they're they're verifying the codes that they receive and each of them gets half of the code. I thought that was pretty cool, like code work, code movie stuff, like spy spy craft. Um, the one of them gets a conscience and and says like I want to talk to somebody on the phone before I kill twenty million people. Yeah. And the other guy just points a gun at him and it like cuts to black. I don't, I do, so what I noticed later on is they, they, they go back to that bunker and there isn't like somebody cleaning blood off the of console. Did that guy actually get shot or was the gun not loaded because it was all part of a test? Like what, what did I miss in that scene? Did that guy actually get killed? No, I don't think they actually, the guy actually got killed because we see the other man packing up the boxes as they were installing the Whopper connection into the missile silos. So, I mean, if he was actually killed, they would, he would be you know removed through court martial. They would be taking him out for trial or doing a full oh, investigation. So I disagree about that. No, no. The guy that shot would not have been court martialed. That, those were his orders. Those were his orders. No, but there's the guy that, yeah. that, that wanted the guy that wasn't shot was alive holding the box. Oh, he, they showed him again and they showed him yeah. alive. Okay, yeah. I just yeah, I guess I just forgot what he looked like by then. <laughs> but you're right. Um, like we, they cut the scene right at the climax, so you don't know what happens. And they talk yeah. about it throughout later in the film. They said it was a failure of the human element, and they like twenty two percent of them right didn't didn't do it right. And they considered what they ha- what happened um, by having a person involved a failure that could have saved lives, um, but. In a zeros now we can talk. I mean, I'm I'm not a computer scientist. We have to preface everything that we're saying here. And if we're getting any of this wrong, we need people to write in with hate mail. <laughs> we need to like have everyone come in and just say, no, yeah, you're wrong. You're wrong about that. Provosvdinos um, at gmail.com for all your hate mail. I'll read it on air. That's right. Uh, but if we're talking about game theory, uh, and what this could be considered new thermonuclear war as being a zero sum game where no one technically wins because mass casualties people die and that any casualty is unforgivable mm-hmm. uh you know, the, the the human element is 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 essential you know to preventing you know any deaths um and so this this scenario right here shows the generals that we need a computer involved to take away this type of fail safe um but ultimately the end of the of the uh of the film we see that that human element is way more important yes yeah it's yeah we need to have somebody that has a conscience that like wants absolute confirmation before before turning that key and making that huge life world changing decision um also but i will say one argument that this movie makes uh for automation over humans is that a, a computer is not going to just urinate in the bunker um, did you notice that there was a, there was a prominently displayed sign that says 
anyone urinating in this area will be discharged. I love that. I love that so much. And I love that they said discharge to a urination in the same side. I love yeah. it. And the, from the beginning of the movie, there's, there's, there's a lot of human humanity. Uh, there's a lot of interesting, uh, bits that they have with mm-hmm. that first scene, you know, coming out of the cold into the cold war, you know, into this yeah. very sterile environment into this room where it's basically them with no windows, you know, in front of, you know, buttons and computers. And I love that old cold war aesthetic. There was this explosion of, of, uh, during the space race in in the cold war, this explosion of technology and building and construction where everything is basically concrete and a lot mm. of buttons and levers and knobs and lights, you know, it, it it, it's it's that kind of um, mad scientist uh, science fiction panel look, you know, uh, that that you don't really see when you have a, a right now with a tablet or a screen that you can touch. It's just just you know one one piece there. But the the Cold War aesthetic is that there's a lot of moving parts. And what does this button do? And what does this button do? I yeah. think that's very very interesting. Yeah, the, there was. Uh a very like Loki aesthetic. Like it's very high tech, but also analog at the same time. Like there's yeah. a lot of, a, a lot of data on the screen and on the displays, but you're not, the fact that you're not interacting with the screen, the fact that you're actually pressing buttons, turning dials makes it feel more, more tactile and, and more, I guess like it bridges that gap between the technology and the human interaction with it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is how things looked in the early eighties, you know, mm. this is the aesthetic that Loki copied. And, uh, in, it's, it's really fascinating that we're going back to that. in a lot of our pop culture that we're kind of embracing it and enjoying it, you know, that kind of, that, me- that mechanical kind of analog, uh, uh, interaction with technology. Um, Even, uh, flip phones are back. Samsung yeah. made flip phones in this year. And that blows my mind. But I was talking to some people, like young people that I know, like like Gen Z people that I know that were like, yeah, I'll get, yeah, I, I could see getting a flip phone. Like, it seems kind of cool. And I'm like, man, that's so, it's so weird that it felt like that's a technology we outgrew. But now there's like, I, I don't know if it's a nostalgia for it or a new audience for it, but we are definitely like looking into the past for, for aesthetic design and, and things like that. Yeah. Retro tech. And retro tech is a good uh, word. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I would like to have a little bit more retro tech in some of my devices, you know, they, mm. whether, whether it's just having a hard wire in for my cell phone, for my audio instead of Bluetooth, just, just something simple like that, or mm-hmm. just, just a big red button on a lightsaber, you know, just some retro tech <laughs> <laughs> makes me, makes me very happy. Yeah. Well, that, that sign, that sign stood out to me because it's one of those things where like you don't post a sign that's that specific unless <laughs> the thing has happened at least twice. Right. Because like one time once. is a fluke. You don't need a sign. But if it, but it happens again, <laughs> somebody pees in the bunker in that like designated <laughs> space. Well, I guess I guess we have to tell people not to do. I guess it's not as obvious as we thought not to do this. Um, so <laughs> right. And I love uh, the I love the conversation between the two soldiers. You know, like they were mm. talking about they were talking about growing marijuana at one point. They called it yep. Wanderoos is the strain of marijuana. They said Resin City, man, Resin City. <laughs> yeah, that's very yeah, and it, yeah, it's it, it's even more poignant when the one guy pulls the gun and and like you find out later they both think this is real. 
They both think right. it's absolutely real. So he thinks that gun is loaded. But like yeah. these guys have some rapport. I don't know if they like hang out outside of work or not, but I don't know if they're allowed to do that, but they definitely have a rapport. They talk a lot. You know, they're, they're coworkers. They know each other. And one of them is absolutely ready to end the other one's life just based on orders and based on like what he perceives is essential for not to ensure national security. There's an ethical quandary that the two are put in and is the concept of following protocols and orders versus mm. compromising your personal, personal ethics and morality. You know, so the, one of them on hand says, I have to follow orders above anything else. I'm going to save lives if I'm instructed to do this and blindly yep. following that orders is going to compromise that ethics. But the other one says, well, I, I should be, I should be questioning orders to make sure that they're real. Also the most important ethical code that I have is to do no harm. So I have to follow all outcomes and out and exhaust all possibilities before blindly following orders. Um, I remember there's an episode sort of Star Trek Next Generation, and I love Star Trek. It goes, it's just, there's so many, it's it's basically a TV show about ethics at times. Mm -hmm. And uh, the entire crew of the Enterprise, they have their memory wiped by an alien race. And mm. then the crew is infiltrated by an alien who slowly, um, not subliminally, but very overtly implants himself into the crew as if he was one of the crew, also without uh, memory, but starts like, instigating orders or uh, concepts or beliefs within the crew that there is an enemy coming to destroy the enterprise and the entire federation. And the only way that they can get out of this scenario is if they end up destroying the home world of the enemy. If they use all of their weapons that they have to blindly just destroy this, um, this it's an outpost um, uh, around this home world. The, 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 uh, and what ends up happening is they get into the scenario where they're about to push the button. Uh, and Picard has this line. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm not going, he's a very similar line. I'm not going to destroy an entire race and civilization on, 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 on blind faith. And, and, uh, and very similarly in this movie, things don't add up. You know, why would this enemy who has technology far beyond be behind us, why would they be attacking us? You know, why would they have declared war upon, uh, up, upon someone, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of light years away. You know, they just mm -hmm. didn't add up. And ultimately Picard, you know, decides not to push the button and in turns to the alien, cause he's the only one out of the entire crew that doesn't share the ethics of questioning the, the, uh, you know, uh, questioning authority, um, and, and, uh, just following blind faith and orders. And they end up not destroying the outpost, uh, but but not without cost because in the process mm. of getting there they had in fact destroyed a uh, a small fighter um, that that had come after the uh, the enterprise at one point so people did end up dying and, and it was one of the large regrets that Picard had ever had you know he let he let his like fear and paranoia and follow, following blind orders get the best of him yeah it's kind of it's kind of a combination of the trolley experiment and the Milgram experiment right or the trolley dilemma. And the, and the Milgram experiment, right? Oh, hundred percent. The Milgram experiment. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure if the audience is very familiar with the Milgram experiment. It's actually done at Yale. Uh, and, uh, basic, they had, a uh, um, participants sit in a room, um, and they were told to push a button. And on the other side of, of, of a, a glass wall was another person with electrodes hooked up to them. 
And every single time they pushed the button, the person on the other side of the of the glass would get an electrical shock. Now it was an actor, so they weren't actually getting an electrical shock. Yeah, and I don't I don't think they saw them. I think they had headphones on and they would hear their reaction to the shocks. Yeah. And and so what happens is progressively as they push the buttons higher and higher and higher. Yeah, you're right. So I think they showed them the person first and then might have closed the window or something like that or many variations of that theme. But as mm-hmm. they as per instructed by the uh, experimenter, the, the third person who was in the room with the, the subject, they would instruct him to push the buttons in sequential order. And as they would push continue down the line, the person would become shocked more and more and more would scream and pain and agony beg for their lives and to stop and they found that the person who was flipping the switches or pushing the buttons they would keep going and this idea that blindly following the orders in spite of the person that you have a direct relationship with that you've seen that you consciously are aware of and know is there being in tremendous pain you know, is, is scary. They attribute Mm -hmm. the Milgram experiment, this, this concept, this cognitive bias as it is to how people blindly followed orders in Nazi Germany, um, how people follow orders in times of war. Um, you know, that the, this concept of, you know, not second guessing yourself, not, not questioning or having a, um, critical, uh, analysis, uh, as being one of the biggest problems we have right now in our, in our culture. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, critical thinking is very, 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 very important. You know, the mm-hmm. ability to question reason, to think abstractly, and also to the ability to, um, to really uh, empathize with another subject or another person. Yeah. And, and they found That's that, that- a lot yeah. of these experiments that they're doing with cognitive biases, the two things that, that are having a problem with it, and I just read another study recently about uh, um, events of critical thinking in, in France. Um, the two things that subjects have that can't, if they can't follow critical thinking um, in these scenarios, they have a large ego and mm. they have no empathy. And as I was watching this movie, I was looking for those characters. You know, those, that's mm-hmm. the two things I was looking. Who has the biggest ego? And uh, who has no empathy? Mm, and I think interesting. The, writer, the writers did a great job of walking that line here. Yeah, and they give us they give us a variety of characters who embody those kinds of attitudes or philosophies. Um, the so that's the Milgram experiment, and I'm sure that everybody's heard of the trolley dilemma. But if you haven't, very briefly, uh, what if like Snidely Whiplash, I guess, kidnaps a bunch of people, <laughs> and because um, it's it's the the setup for the scenarios is absurd, but it's one person is tied to the train tracks, and then there's parallel tracks next to them with five people tied to it, and a train is coming, and you are your hand is on a switch that will divert the train to one of the two tracks. So you can either, uh, if you pull the switch. It will divert to the per- to the track that has one person tied to it and kill only one person. But if you do nothing, then it'll continue on its course and run over five people. So your inaction, if you are willing to accept blame for it, kills five people. Uh, but your action could save five, but it actively kills one. Right. Um, and that's kind of like, you know, do we if we. I don't know exactly. Like, that's the thing. That's kind of the conclusion of this movie that like that we kind of lead to is this whole entire setup is flawed because turning these keys, it just means more people die. It doesn't it doesn't actually mean like anybody is necessarily saved. Um, That's kind of what the computer in the end 
realizes through the tic-tac-toe simulation, like this is the the whole thing from the very concept of it. It doesn't make sense. Exactly. Uh, You know, we put these people in the bunker, we force them to make this decision. And as much as we even try to take the choice out of it, you know, we try to make it just them following orders. It still comes down to what is the point? And ultimately, what is the point of this? Right. It's, it's the, uh, the, the pie fight at the end of Dr. Strangelove, you know, yeah. what is the point? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just all silly nonsense to begin with, you know? So, uh, we're looking at what from the scenario that we have where these two men can't come to a conclusion, um, ultimately people could have died. So they create a trolley experiment by putting a computer in place of the two men in the bunker. Uh, yeah. and, and that leads us, we go to, to the next scene where we're in NORAD, uh, mm. in Colorado, which is a NORAD, very, what does NORAD stand for? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a computer person and I'm not a, uh, a, I'm not a, a military person. Uh, give me one second. I think it's the North, North American, uh, uh, North American area, aerial, aerial detection or something like that. I'll tell you in two seconds. North American Aerospace Defense Command. Aerospace Defense Command. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's not the abbreviation, but that's what it's for. I don't know. What mm-hmm. North American Aerospace De- Defense Command. Um, but yeah, that's the it's acronym. not. It's not directly an acronym. I guess it's just like a an abbrev. Yeah. Short for abbreviation. Right. See how much time I saved. <laughs> <laughs> We don't say look anything up instead of abbreviation. That's right. We don't look anything up, and we don't say full <laughs> words on robots versus dinos. <laughs> well, the, mil- the military especially does not say full words. That that is a very common like condensing of terms to get to get a, a an easy to say term like NORAD. Yeah, but I loved how we went directly to NORAD before we introduced our main characters, mm-hmm. and we can see the aftermath of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see you know, they they have that teaser of them going for like far deep into the mountain just to give us the, you know, the, the severity of, of, of defense and this giant metal door slowly closing, you know, and people like walking casually in and out of like, Oh, this is nothing. This is day to day what we do, even though the door is designed to withstand a nuclear missile. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it's, it's scary. You know, like that was the paranoia. Like people needed big doors um, in the eighties. Yeah, it's and, like the opening of Get Smart, where he's just going through like a series of of closing closing mechanisms. That's right, and he ends up, of course, in a phone booth at the end. Yeah, him. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that NORAD is a real place. These are real people that have real jobs with real mm-hmm. protocols. You know that people do have their butt hands on the button. Um, a lot of this film, I I'm I'm not an expert, but I feel uh, was based on reality. You know, like there's there's mm. a there's a lot that could have happened. Um, I know in, in, in the eighties we had, uh, Reagan, you know, made a promise of developing a star Wars missile defense system, mm-hmm. you know, uh, adding technology into the mix with thermonuclear war, um, that they were, that were going to protect the United States by, by adding more machines. Yeah. And we essentially, I don't know if we have it, but Israel certainly has, um, like satellites that can uh, that can shoot a, 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 a missile down from space. Um, they can essentially like lock onto any missile, even while it's in the air, and shut it down. 
Uh, and that was the that was what Reagan was trying to introduce. That, of course, has been uh, mis misinterpreted uh, to be the the Jewish space lace. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You and I have had candid conversations about this. Like, how much of this paranoia and conspiracy theory actually exists right. versus having actual practical usages of, yeah. of missile defense? You know, is is there a giant golden eye in the sky um, from the Cold War built to protect us? <laughs> or is it all that alt-right nonsense that's on the internet, you know? Yeah, at the very least, there's, there's a series of satellites that give us, like, triangulation, global positioning. It's how we, you know, get directions from Siri when we're driving and stuff like that. Um, but, <laughs> but that pinpoint but, accuracy with Siri of where we're driving to also can mean there's pinpoint accuracy with a missile as well. So yes. that is very much believable right there. And I don't think we need lasers in space to get that. Uh, yes, yes. And, and we certainly don't have a laser that will like come down and just burn your mustache off um, that you with that level of precision or thing. That would be fantastic because then I wouldn't need to shave. I'll just step out the back door <laughs> and just look up into the sky and suddenly yeah. I have like a Van Dyke. It would be amazing. Yeah, you, you can download an app like line, you line up your face in the app and it like shears the outline for you. Uh, <laughs> one, of, <laughs> one of the scary things they talk about in this opening in this opening bit at NORAD, like they're talking about they're they're debating this experiment that they just pulled with their with their air force personnel and they're talking about like you know 22% of them didn't do their job they failed the experiment they failed the test and they're talking about like if they automate this how much time it takes when when a missile actually gets launched and it's 20 they said 23 minutes from warning to impact um 6 if it's launched from a submarine and i right. I, I can only imagine like that that the timetables for both of those have gone down over over the past 30 years, right? Absolutely. And having a computer involved in that decision would mean it, it's essential for a nation's survival or people or culture's survival. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, the 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 urgency that they want to inject computers into our lives, you know, those split second decisions that humans couldn't make uh, mm -hmm. that time frame, you know, you know life-saving time frame well ultimately i think the argument is it's not even life-saving it's just like this is my revenge on you this is like the like if i if i if i uh set a, a trap with my corpse so that if you touch my corpse you get you know like a tripwire breaks and you get like i don't know like a, a heavy bucket of cement dumped on your head i don't know yeah, that that's the overall you know conclusion I mean? that 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 uh, people have come to about nuclear war is that there's there's really no winners, and that's mm -hmm. this is again the end of the movie. Um, we we that the nuclear fallout is enough to really ruin the the world and the nation and the place where we are. Um, mm -hmm. That there's there's really no winners, even when one nuclear missile is dropped on an area. Um, and and yeah, it, I mean, if they could all go, in my opinion, I would be very happy. You know, because yeah. we that threat of annihilation and destroying uh, our planet f for, you know, for generations, you know, it's not something we should even be approaching. Yeah. I would argue it's not good for uh, society. It's not good for interpersonal relations. Um, <laughs> interpersonal relations. I mean, really like on, on a, on a uh, international level, like the, the way that we, mistrust each other it's just not it's because of this it's because these things exist like the, yeah. 
just the air of mistrust. Like it, like I, I, I'm kind of joking, but kind of not. Like we would all. I think I think I agree with you, Jason. We would all be better off if we all disarmed every like every nuclear weapon. Yeah, it's never it, going to happen. It's this, such a pie in the sky dream, but you know, it would be a utopia. It would be, well, not a utopia, but things would be better. Things would be a little bit better. There's, there's a belief in international communities that once a nation achieves nuclear independence, particularly with nuclear missiles, then they become an actually established nation that once that they're a threat with a nuclear arsenal, and mm-hmm. this is what all nations should be working towards achieving is very, very disturbing. Um, especially yeah. with, uh, I don't want to say rogue nations, but, um, nations that have very totalitarian, uh, regimes, um, that, that are, are, are very threatening to their neighbors, to others um, that have a lot of civil rights violations. You know, we, they can't be policed appropriately. Um, they can't be influenced. Um, they can't be, you know, given aid uh, in, in some scenarios if they're always threatening to launch nuclear missiles. And uh, th- I wish they were uninvented. Yeah. Damn you, Albert Einstein. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even even Oppenheimer wished, like, after he finished it, that they were uninvented, right? Yeah, absolutely. Immediately, like, uh, on the creation of the bomb. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that actually, that, I think that's actually a really good segue to lose big three, number two, because we're going we're gonna to talk about the guy that invented um, the Whopper machine, the War Operation Planned Response machine, uh, Dr. Falcon. Um, but the question I have, the big question I have before we talk about Dr. Falcon is uh, that that video presentation that he made about the dinosaurs going extinct, which is, it's very good. It's very high production value. Um, it's also a little bit disturbing. Like it shows these dinosaurs <laughs> in anguish as their world is burning around them. It's very emotional. Jason, who is that video made for? I don't know. It's a very, it's like the most bleak professor's a lecture that he's giving to students based he mm-hmm. has it created already he's like i'm gonna show yes. you guys what's up and he plays this this film reel and it's using stock footage of dinosaurs then the destruction of the world explaining that you know um all things come to an end you know, these great yeah. creatures of the past were were once here and walked on the earth but eventually they all died out and they said something like nothing over 50 pounds survived i wrote that down yeah nothing no creature no land animal with a body weight of over 50 pounds survived this extinction event and then he says this line here which extinction is part of the natural order he's not wrong no he's not wrong but he also is a very uh pessimistic view of humanity very defeatist he thinks that uh humanity has had its time and we're all you know you know close to that clock ending that that you know 10 seconds to midnight that clock ending and humanity's time is up and he's Mm -hmm. his idea you know because he's in been in hiding they put him in witness protection i don't understand why but his idea (laughs) is to be near to the first impact location so he would die first and experience the least amount of pain and to him that loss of pain and suffering is is the only thing he can do as opposed to dismantling the entire you know machine that he built you know, he feels that, well, we're all going to go someday. I might as well just die first with the least amount of pain. Mm. 
And he like the the so he he has this obsession now with dinosaurs, which is kind of cool. Like uh, <laughs> it makes it makes this movie extremely appropriate for this podcast because we have this scientist who built a robot um, to, I guess. I guess his intention was to save the world or to help protect the world. Um, you know, to uh, what is what is Tony Stark saying? Age of Ultron. We want to build a suit of armor around the world. Um, right, right. And now he's realized the the hubris of the whole thing, and he's realized like the the mistake that he made. And now his eye is turned towards the past, and he's realizing like the past, what happened to the dinosaurs, will teach us what our future will be. Um, and he's kind of become singularly obsessed with this concept. Um, right. So yeah. Falcon, Falcon in as a character represents what David was. Uh, Rathy Broderick's character, David, the lead, what, what he was. Uh, very optimistic on the world, just wanted to enjoy life, cared about others, play games. And his first computers he designed were to do that to you know to play games to make the world more enjoyable to bring joy to people and his his creation of Joshua the computer in the film is is that it's a it's a computer that can learn a computer that can learn how to play games and learns from you and the interactions the more interactions that you have with it the more it learns mm-hmm. uh and um he cre- he now we don't know what extent he has into creating whopper uh, Whopper, of course, the the clever pun uh, um, uh, for the computer is is making fun of of the Burger King, you know, sandwich, which is very very eighties. Um, but what does Whopper stand for? Um, war operation planned response. War war operation planned response. Right. So the fact that he can create a computer that'll learn is very important to Dabney Coleman's character mm-hmm. uh, in in developing. Uh, software and hardware that can you know protect us in those split second scenarios. Yeah, and he um he 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 realizes it's kind of interesting. He realizes that the thing that the computer never learned that he thinks it needs to learn is futility. And that sort of it's an interesting word because it manifests two different ways. He means in that moment when he's explaining it, the futility of what you described like we're all going to die. The dinosaurs, as as dominant and powerful and awesome as they were, they all died because of you know a destructive force beyond their control, and that's our inevitable future. Like we're going to we're going to suffer the same fate, but at our own hands. So everything is futile. But the right. interesting, the other side of that coin is when Matthew Broderick feeds the Tic Tac Toe program into um, in, into Joshua it realizes the futility of nuclear war in the first place. So like he, the, the doctor was almost right. Like, yes, it needs to learn futility, but he was wrong about why it needed to learn that. Right. Spoiler alert. The end of the movie is a scene where Joshua, I'm sorry, where uh, David feeds Joshua a game of tic-tac-toe and, and, and tells him to play, uh, Falcon tells Joshua, uh, tells David to tell Joshua to play with zero players, forcing mm-hmm. the computer to play with himself. And in that scenario, he learns that the game of tic-tac-toe, like global thermal nuclear war, is a zero-sum game where ultimately no one wins. There's stalemates. Mm-hmm. And he can equivocate the two together and says, that's a very interesting game, a strange game. The only winning move is not to play. Um, and then, of course, he makes the, the, the choice, how about a nice game of chess? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, 
the doctor learns futility and over over his lifetime and the introduction of david and jennifer actually teaches him that there's more than the futility of global thermonuclear war that yeah that the human element that empathy that that caring that love is is most important and that should be protected at all costs and it gets him to come out of hiding it gets him to basically get a helicopter so they can flee back to norad into colorado mm-hmm. um but I love how in the ending, when they're having that scene where David gets the idea, you know, like games, it's about games, you know, Falcon, uh, uh, he, he's, he knows that it's going to play out like this. He knows Mm -hmm. that it's going to come down to tic-tac-toe. He had programmed it in there and he's smiling throughout the entire last you know, last scene of the film, you know, and, and telling David, you go ahead and do it. You, you know this, you know what's going on. Like mm-hmm. very, very paternally, like teaching someone about how the world is and how these computers are. And of course, David figures out that it's not listing tic-tac-toes, but he can still put in tic-tac-toe. Um, and, and ultimately the computer makes that choice at the end. Yeah, they, they kind of establish early. I think Ali Sheedy says like, it's, it's a boring game, like tic-tac-toe. Any five-year-old will like you're only going to lose tic-tac-toe once. Once you, once you see like, oh, that's how I lost. It, it's so easy to prevent that next time. You're never right. going to, every, every other game of tic-tac-toe after that is going to be a stalemate. And yeah. so a computer is going to learn that instantaneously. And the difference in like the two meanings of futility is one is, you know, the doctor at first is saying like, we just need to throw up our, our hands and give up and just make our demise as comfortable as possible. But the futility that the computer learns through tic-tac-toe is it's it's futile to even play this game. We, we should choose not to play. Like the choice not to play is is really interesting. And well, it and, it's, and it mean it gives us more humanity when we choose not to. So you have to, I mean, I think you should add a, a fourth question to lose big four. I mean, we can talk about this later, but we'll talk about it right now. Does the computer ever stop playing the game? Mm. It stops doing the global thermonuclear war, but does it mm-hmm. ever stop playing the game? And and uh, does the game actually end? Um, because it stops launching missiles, but is it still playing some type of game with as Joshua with with Falcon and with David and Jennifer? Um, I would argue if you fed more information into it about like microbiomes and things like that it probably would keep playing. It would, it would, it would come up with scenarios of like, okay, the whole planet like loses its large mammals and everything, but these are the next species that live on. And that's a form of the game continuing. Right. Mm, Yeah. Uh, I have the questions about, is this computer considered artificial intelligence? Is it, is it Mm. considered sentient? It does learn, Mm -hmm. but is it, is it, is it aware of itself? Um, it doesn't have any type of ideas of a conscience or consciousness. Um, what, what are the ethics of this artificial intelligence? Does it involve, you know, laws of robotics, for example, we, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't know. All we know is that the computer can learn and it's gotten out of control. So how big, how much has Joshua grown, um, since he was created and Joshua was created. If you look back at the reels that they had done and the discussions that David was having with Jennifer and when Joshua, uh, when, um, Falcon, uh, quote unquote died, he 
was active since 1973. Mm -hmm. uh, Falcon developed in 10 years earlier. So this computer's been around for a while. And uh, they've just transferred him into the Whopper system um, for him to function within NORAD. Now, do you think that it's meant to like simulate the personality of Dr. Falcon's dead son. Like that, that the fact that it calls, uh, it calls David up later because it seems it quote unquote misses him. And the fact that it's always pers- like persistent about let's play a game. How about a game of chess? Let's play this. Like, do you think those are in, meant to be interpreted as personality or yes. do you think it's just algorithm, like, you know, programming, whatever, Yes, yeah, so I I think Falcon either designed um, Joshua in the image of his own son, who he liked to play games with mm-hmm. uh, before he died, uh, or his own image. Now, the voice of of Joshua Whopper is Falcon's voice. It's computerized, but yeah. it does it does have that you know English accent to it um, and the way that it talks. So he definitely designed it in his own vein or image. Um, well, his yeah, son he, would have that accent too, right? But not as an adult, though. It would be talking like a child. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So it could be his son, because named Joshua, and it would make sense. But also at the same time, it could be himself injecting himself into the machine. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, what I, I've asked you that I've asked you this every time you've been on the show, but this is a good, uh, definitely a good time to bring this question up again. In your in your definition, what is a robot? And I guess what I want to add to that is what makes what's the difference between a, a robot and a human? Like, at what point would we say that this this robot does not have a personality or is just adhering to its programming and not like person like? That's a great question. So, what is a robot? Um, we've the the show talks about how robots are mechanical in some nature, usually non-biological. Um, they follow some type of mechanical order to do a task. Um, automate, uh, they're automated, so they don't have human involvement. Um, they could be simple tasks, complex tasks. Um, they're machines um, that usually do tasks that humans don't perform. Uh, this this robot uh, performing that task of the global thermonuclear war. Uh, now, uh, what makes a human different from a robot would be that emotional quotient, that empathy, that ability to look beyond the ego or self and put yourself into someone else's shoes. Does, does Joshua have that? I don't know. But it, it, it does notice when Falcon hasn't contacted him for a long time. You know, is curious and wondering about it. Um, it it does it does have questions, which is mm. which is very interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and so the question is, you know, is is Joshua a learning computer to learn empathy? Um, we don't know. We don't know. It's. I think it's certainly. I think it's certainly displaying displaying behavior that it's easy for us to project and say it has a personality. Like it misses, I used the word earlier, like it misses Dr. Falcon. Uh, It calls him up because it misses him. But really, I mean, an argument can be made that it's, that is just one of the checks that it runs, you know, like run, run uh, system check, like last time since game, 
versus like biologic length of 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 lifespan of a biological being like so it can realize like oh well if it's been this much time since i've played chess with my creator um time for him is running out inevitably you know like objectively speaking every single moment that passes is 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 closer to his entropy um so like maybe i need to communicate with him to find out like to check in on him um i don't know it's like i'm it's kind of that Pixar thing. Like you can, you can put cute eyes and, and a cute, like squeaky voice on anything. And you're going to, you're going to project your own humanity onto it. You're going to project a personality onto it. Right. Absolutely. And there's, there's, it's no wonder they put a voice on the computer. Cause if you're doing this entire movie with a terminal and just mm. like input output text on screen, it doesn't really work as well but as it, soon as it, it almost has a face right it almost has like they like do two on, eyes on, and a mouth like when it shows the display readout exactly on a little whopper uh big the big whopper unit in the middle of the norad room uh there's a little face on it in in led lights which which yeah. is really, really fun but i don't think uh joshua views falcon as a creator or at least we haven't seen that he doesn't okay. talk to him as if he's creator. He talks to him as if he's an opponent because he's designed to play mm. games. So Falcon is always the opponent in the game. Good point. So him checking in with Falcon is checking in with your opponent to see how the game is going, where they are, what the next move is. Um, but I love the lines that, that, that uh, uh, Joshua has where he's questioning and he's very inquisitive and he's wondering mm-hmm. things. So he's that line that he says, a strange game. You know, he's really mm-hmm. contemplating what makes a game or what happens, you know, and, and, and why they're doing these things. So it makes me think that he is more than just a gaming computer input output AI. You know, he, he's definitely learning to the point where he's questioning his reality. Uh, mm. Or I'm saying his because it has a, a male voice. Now, jo- now Joshua's given the name Joshua has a male voice, but it really the computer has no no gender. It right. Say it but it's inter- It is interesting that the creator of the this computer uh, of this robot projects that projects gender onto it, gives it the name of of his son, and and the voice that's programmed uh, for it for it to speak is a male voice. So. Yeah. Like, yeah, like it's, it's, it is interesting. Like you are absolutely right that the robot doesn't have a gender, but the way that it was programmed inherently, like it should, it says something about the creators of it, that they like, it, they intended for it, its gender to be male. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's, that's, that's always something interesting when you look at the design of robots is like, what, like, why would the creator make it male versus female? One observation I've noticed or I've had about this is that when the computer or robot in a movie is supposed to be like really, really smart and do things like this uh, or like run a space station or something like that, it tends to be like a male voice. Um, But when it's supposed to have some sort of like caring, like uh, protective, motherly kind of role, it tends to be a, a, a female voice in the robot. Right. And this is also the, one of the reasons why I think the the robot, not robot, I'm sorry, Joshua is ultimately Falcon. Uh, Falcon, um, when we first are introduced to Falcon, when he's flying his, his was it a pterodon? Um, yeah. 
along the uh, it's a, a pterodon glider that he has mm-hmm. r- controlled by remote control uh, around the the island where he is. Um, he talks and suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, his voice is Joshua's voice. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, though, he talks to David and Jennifer in computer instructions in code. So he has the la- he has he tells them these instructions. He says, "Now listen carefully. Path, follow path. Gate, open gate. Through gate, close <laughs> gate. Last ferry, six thirty. So run, run, run. Those are all computer instructions. You know, open, yeah. follow, run. You know, so even gate, close, gate is gate, yeah. right. Uh, so Joshua is, in in my opinion, we learned that he is an extension of Falcon, or at least mm-hmm. Falcon trying to determine his humanity." You know, and at the conclusion of the film, you always you realize that yeah, Falcon is rediscovering his humanity and in in the wonder of 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 of, uh, of youth, um, the emotions and empathy, and and doing what's right and good for everyone, um, in spite of this this very very nihilistic view. Mm. Speaking of nihilistic views, lose big three number three. Is this movie an accurate prediction of our inevitable demise or our inevitable salvation, perhaps? Um, hmm. I think this movie is a very accurate depiction of our inevitable salvation. Uh, I, and in, in all the characters, every single one, there's, there's not a bad guy. Um, they all have degrees of, 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 uh, awareness and perception throughout the events that happen, but there's not one conclusive bad guy out to do bad or harm that's going to get sent to jail. Everyone is celebratory, uh, clapping and hugging and relieved at the end when they solve the problem and, and get the computer to stop launching nuclear missiles. So it's true. It's kind of like flight of a navigator in that, in that sense. It's a very optimistic ending that as a people, we can come together, we can solve the problem of nuclear war and technology if we stop and just display our humanity and consider the other people on the other end. There's that one scene uh, where the general, uh, who's who's played by the dad from my science project, we talked about him before, uh, General Back Jack Berger, paid by Barry Corbin, um, but okay. G- General Berenger, you know, he gets the uh, other, la- not the launch sites, but the target sites on the line in the control room, in the command center, and uh, wants to hear them as the missiles are raining down upon them. The, the illusion missiles uh, are raining down on them. And there's that very tense moment that we're waiting, li- looking for life. And of Oh, course, yeah, and that like one junior officer gets on because his commanding officer's gone. I love that. I love yeah. how how all of the other officers are just you know uh, seasoned military uh, machine uh, almost officers uh, say ready sir copy sir things like that and then they they have the one officer that comes in he says my my senior officer is not available uh, yeah, his voice kind of cracks you can tell yeah. he's really young yeah exactly he and he definitely makes you suddenly you're now emotionally involved with this young officer. Uh, you know, in this very, very, very important officer, I think Airman Doherty, uh, okay. in this in this very, very important situation, um, and then we we it's all revealed that it's just it's it's not real. There's an illusion happening, mm. um, but that type of concept gives us hope that we can you know um, overcome these troubles that we have with machines and overcome the troubles that we have with global thermal nuclear war. You know, we can we can be better. 
Yeah, it's you are you talking about that um the general guy? Is that the guy that like they almost every scene they show him uh with a pouch of like red man chewing tobacco? It's the it's the guy the guy at the end that the Dabney Coleman calls pig eyed. Yeah, he has a cigar at the end. He's the one that's giving yep. orders. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was like a neat little casual 80s thing that this like military officer is just walking around with a pouch of uh of red man. Um and like like there's also like this is uh, incidental, but there's also like a question when they're um, booking the uh, booking the flight to France. Uh, he uh, Matthew Broderick asks Ali Sheedy if she wants to sit in the smoking or non-smoking section of the airplane. Yeah, yeah, such a quaint little like eighties thing. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. so like that that the guy like with the chewing tobacco and the cigar and all that like him and the other almost villain character i think his name is mckittrick um yeah. he mckittrick is uh he is the uh hotel manager at the sedwick hotel from ghostbusters oh yeah oh man good call out okay yes that's that okay so that's who dabney coleman is okay no 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 i'm, I'm talking that's dabney coleman is not no dabney coleman is the computer Dab- head of uh the head of the computer department the computer mckittrick no, yeah, oh, his name is McKittrick. He's, he's McKittrick. I'm sorry. There's another mustache guy who's another general who played okay. the, the hotel manager at the Septic Hotel. Dabby Coleman okay. was in, was in uh, Clifford. He was the, the boss in Clifford. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. All right. My, my mind is like all over the place now because, okay, I knew this guy looked familiar and it's because we saw him in Clifford like just yes. a week ago. Yes. yes. All right. He's the horrible guy in Clifford that we all hate, but he's and a great he's not, actor. He's we, not. The hotel manager from Ghostbusters, because that no, guy ho- that guy seems familiar too. The hotel manager from Ghostbusters is the general, uh, the one that was working with, uh, um, working uh, with the the main the main general. Got it. Well, what I wanted to say about these two guys is that like the movie does things where I agree with you that nobody is actually a villain in the end, but it does things to set them up, like to set up your audience expectations that these guys are the villains. Like the, the, like the, it's, it comes down to mainly the conversations that they have, the way that they like have this animosity towards each other. Um, and they kind of say like, not mean things, but things that might set them up to become more villainous later on. But also yeah. honestly, just the fact that this guy has the habit of putting like chaw in his mouth that I, it may be a weird like stereotype that I'm making, but it really made me think like, Oh, this guy's not, not a good guy. Like that's, that's the, that's a little thing, a little business that you give to a villain character. Yeah. There's, there's a, a lot of great lines that he has, uh, that everyone has some wonderful lines that just gives them a little bit of character and flavor. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think one of my favorite ones that the general has is he's on the, on the phone with the president and he's like talking to the president about, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the fighters coming in and then someone is talking to him. He goes, well, that's a piece of shit. Oh no, yeah. not sorry. Not you, <laughs> Mr. President. I love it. <laughs> goes, well, that's uh, also, a load of shit. <laughs> he also has a line where I think, um, I think, Jurassic Park uh, lifted this line where he says, like, after careful consideration, uh, I've come to the conclusion that your automated, I, I didn't, I didn't have write down the whole thing, but it's the after careful consideration part. Um, and he basically says, like, you know, I, your, your automated war machine is a piece of shit. Yeah, he says it's, it's recommended a full scale attack. And then he says, I don't mm. need some machine to tell me that. Mm hmm. 
you know, says he he knows his orders and knows what has to happen. You know, he has he's got a lot of a lot of those clever lines like that. Um, and then there's this other line that happens later when Falcon's talking to him. You know, that, mm-hmm. that Falcon has. He says, "General, you are listening to a machine. Do the world a favor and don't act like one." Ooh, good line. Really yeah. good line. And the general then at that point, you know, tells them to stop and list, get the other soldiers on the horn, you know, from the other, the other bases at that point, you know, there, yeah. there's that, that character, again, it's just, there's no bad guys. They're all just coming to terms with their humanity and the, the, the desperation that they're in this zero sum game of nuclear war. There's another thing that McKittrick does at one point that like, this is like another like small detail I noticed that made me think like, oh, this guy's, this guy's going to be the villain. Um, I really want to dig into this moment because it was so weird. Mm-hmm. There's there's a bit where he's going into a meeting and he's chewing gum and his assistant is like catching him up on everything. And he's <laughs> and she's like gum and he takes the gum out of his mouth or spits it into her hand. Yeah. And then she pops it into her own mouth. Yes. Jason, explain this to me. This movie is filled of these little moments, these little bits that are just humanity's quirks. Like uh-huh. they're not, they don't have rationalism, but they make me love <laughs> this movie all the more. It's like the little weird shit that we do. And it's just full of them. <laughs> like, I'll give you another example. So his dad, uh, David's dad, who is the neighbor in the TV show, Small Wonder. I'm not sure if you've ever know, seen that robot TV yep. show. Yep. Yep, it's about a, a child android that, uh, that um, a computer scientist creates and brings home and they, they have her as a fam- mem- family member. But he's the neighbor that works at the Robotics industri- Institute together. But he's the, David's father in this movie. He does this brilliant thing when they're eating dinner and his wife serves them corn on the cob. He takes the corn on the skewer and... <laughs> It butters it inside a piece of bread, mm-hmm. simultaneously buttering both corn and bread. It is the most brilliant piece of j- trickery I've ever seen on the dinner table. And then, <laughs> and of course, that's that's the that's the smart thing you would do at the dinner table if you're if you're learning and knowing how to be, become a world. And then his wife, who is getting some some bonkers like conspiracy ideas or, or tips about how to eat healthy and, and eat raw decides to not cook the corn and serve it to him raw. So they have this conversation about, because he nearly breaks his tooth on the corn. It's like, Oh, you can really taste the vitamin a It's like, yeah, I could, why don't we just take vitamins? I mean, why not, <laughs> why not cook the corn next time? That was such a good bit, but I I was wondering like why is this in here? There's such there's so many close ups on him doing all this business with the corn. Like it's so out of left field. But I I I like your take on it that it's like another example of just showing the odd quirks of humanity that are unique to us as as a species. This movie could be completely plot driven um, from beginning to middle and end. It could be just nothing but plot and it would be a very shorter movie. It's all, mm-hmm. it's very, it's pretty short in, in, in general right now, but if you remove these moments, it's like two and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, if I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. It's not very short right now, but it's pretty long. But in, in those moments, like if you remove those moments, it would be a very, 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 very short movie. Um, yeah. another one, for example, we're opened up and introduced to David and he goes to play Galaga uh, you know, the classic arcade game at the arcade, not going to school, of course, at car- playing, uh, playing Galaga. And this, you know, young, like 10 year old kid next to him, he gives the game over to him, say, Hey, can you take this? And mm. he, he transfers the game to the, to the kid. You know, this is not, 
this is not something that we need to see, but it shows us that he's a kind person. He knows people. They're kind back to him. They have a good rapport and he's giving and caring. And, uh, and, and then of course that the older generation, the younger generations embrace all this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, there's little moments like that throughout the entire movie that, that are really fun that when they're in uh, David's room, which is very much a room that I would have had when I was a kid mm-hmm. filled with like random computer stuff and old stuff on the walls and movie posters and what have you. And clothes uh, just thrown over everything. Right. Uh, he has, uh, his, he, uh, Jennifer is introduced to his room. And of course that's, that's scandalous having a girl up in your room without parents enrolled. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of scandalous. And they, his parents make a joke about it and call him her little friend, his little friend. And Jennifer, they do the first little flirtatious bit right there where Jennifer yeah. kind of traps him between his legs, uh, her legs, and doesn't let him to move and has this kind of like flirtatious lurk and goes, little friend, huh? Uh, <laughs> there's little moments like that throughout the entire movie. They're not over the top, but they set a good tone. Later on, it pays off where they actually have that kiss uh, when they're on the shore of, mm-hmm. of Falcon's Island and before the helicopter, of course, interrupts them. But there's these little moments that kind of pay off. The, the bit with the, the safe closing in the beginning of the film, where we see this giant safe closing, it pays off at the end when they go to DEFCON 5 and they're all rushing to get into the bunker. That safe, they narrowly get in, through that door into the safe as it closed, very Indiana Jones style, catching, like grabbing his hat before the door closes. Um, there's a lot of these little, little moments, these little bits that really make us, you know, appreciate the film and enjoy it a whole lot more. Yeah. I, I read, uh, somewhere in like the trivia for this movie that, um, they sent, they like sent a Galaga machine to Matthew Broderick's house so he could practice for something like two months, um, before wow. that scene, just so they could show him being really good at it when, I mean, I don't know, they could have, it seems like they could have just, program like done a shot of the screen and like somebody playing really well and then a shot of him playing but they they he got really into character and like learned he spent two months learning galaga so that he could show how good he is uh, i wish on i could screen like i wish i could get paid two two months of galaga that would be yeah right the best role ever yeah we uh, did I, that for we did we paid to do that back in the day we paid uh, yeah. to go to an arcade and do that <laughs> Yeah, that is a great shot, though. You see his face reflected against the the Galaga uh, mm-hmm. and the, the kid then standing behind him. It's a great shot right there. Uh, yeah, it, it made me think of uh, Back to the Future when um, when he's when he's playing that shooting game in the yeah. diner. Um, yeah, we have to talk about <laughs> we have to talk about like what we did as kids, because this movie, mm-hmm. I feel, reflected me as a kid. It It's a. It's an 80s film. So it's one of those films that I've seen many times. It was always playing in syndication on television. So most people usually caught just the last bit, the ending, because it's so long. They usually Mm -hmm. just get the tail end of it before the next TV show is on. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely a film of something that I would have done or I did do. Uh, I had an old, old Commodore 64 that I had up in my room that I would load discs into and make my own programs and stuff. Um, later on I had a computer with a modem and I would actually go to the library and I thought I was the coolest hacker in the world. And I grabbed, <laughs> and I grabbed their, like their phone number and password off the computers. Cause there's no computer security back then, you know, mm-hmm. and I would dial into their servers and things like that and do silly stuff like check out books and stuff like that. Even though like I wasn't actually yet there at the library, I uh, mm-hmm. would log into the, you know, the state's library de- databases and in, in, in just 
poke around a little bit, you know, you wouldn't get in trouble because you're not doing anything wrong. The, the only thing would be I would I would have access to their you know their basic systems and things like that. So this world of home computing was you know kind of huge at the time for many many people, and uh, it later on developed into the the kind of uh, cyberpunk techno film hackers, and then later on even more crazy the net, and on top of that uh, Johnny Mnemonic. Now the oh, question. Yeah. The question that I have for you, Lou, mm -hmm. is, is this film a prequel to Terminator 2 or The Matrix? Good question. Is Joshua the prototype for Skynet, essentially? Um, or, or is it or, a prequel for The Matrix? Or the Wachowski's it, uh, The yeah. Matrix. So, yeah. So, so I guess like the evolution would be if it was The Matrix, Joshua realizes humanity is doomed. It's gonna, you know, they're gonna they're gonna launch all these missiles at some point. Um, whether I tell them to or not, they're gonna do it. So I have to protect them from themselves. And the only way to do that is to uh, put them all into like hook them into, into like a big battery generator, um, and, and, and take their energy, um, and put them into a, of a fantasy world. I think I see, I have, I feel like I have to make more, I have to fill in more gaps to get there than Joshua like evolves into realizing like I control missile launch, uh, technology and I control all of these like huge decision makers, um, like that have their finger on the button and uh, you know, I, I can, I can essentially end the world. I can, I can bring on nuclear war in the, in the blink of an eye from this one control panel. And yeah, I do think at some point Joshua runs a simulation where he realizes like humans are bad for this planet. What's good for this planet is big metal machines uh, with skulls for heads and <laughs> they carry big laser guns. <laughs> Um, so let's build a bunch of those and I'll, and I'll launch all the missiles and we'll get rid of humanity. So you're on, you're in the, you're in the Terminator twos camp versus the Absolutely. matrix camp. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's where I come down. What about you? I'm, I'm at the matrix camp because of the simulation. So okay. the first simulations being the games, uh, that, that is happening, developing over time into the matrix itself simulation. Mm. Uh, so there's, there's lines directly in this film that would kind of feed that, you know, we have the, the random tech coming in, the bearded tech coming in screaming when the, the, when the, the, the attacks are first starting, you know, when Joshua's first starting to take over and screaming, it's a simulation, it's a simulation. Someone fed an attack simulation to the quote unquote matrix simulation. Uh. And it's, it's, it's very, very, very matrix, and like the evolution of this could turn into the matrix down the word, uh, down the, the line. There is okay. some, there is something over time that actually we have developed uh, in our legal system called and, uh, this is this is so disturbing. The paranoia that people have the, uh, the, the with schizophrenia and, and, and psychology and psychosis when people do very, very disturbing things, um, you know, or, or do tragic things, um, they actually put up something called, which is known as the matrix defense. 
So mm. claiming some type of, of mental in, insanity, they use something called the matrix defense where they are under a belief that everything in their world is a simulation and their consequences are only to feed that simulation. Um, it's taken and lifted directly out of the movie, uh, the mm. matrix. And if you go out, if you watch this movie throughout the entire movie, there's moments where this happens. Um, the moments after, after they, they land uh, up in Oregon to see Falcon, uh, Jennifer and David have this conversation and, and David turns to her and says, you, even you don't believe me, you know, uh, in the way that he's talking about this computer and, and Jennifer yeah. still doesn't. Jennifer still doesn't get it. She's like, wait, wait, is this just because uh, you changed my grade? <laughs> it's a very funny line that she has. She still doesn't get it. But then mm-hmm. he gets so passionate. It seems to the point where he's, he's so crazy. So there's these moments of, of breaks with reality that he has, um, you know, talking about being in this simulation, his paranoia. Uh, and then there's, there's similar lines as well about to, compared to the matrix where they try to cut the hard lines to the computer which is what they do in the matrix at certain, at certain moments to free themselves from the matrix. You know, they scream, cut the line, cut the line. And then they say, I told you not to cut the line, you know, cause they're trying to trace it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course the whole entire concept of shutting down the matrix, shutting it all down and ending it. Um, that common line that we hear in, in a lot of uh, uh, simulation movies and in television, shutting it all down. But I'm under the camp that this is this is the evolution of the Matrix. Uh, eventually, um, Joshua, um, you know, d- turns to decide that humanity only way to protect humanity is to put them into a game, mm. and and uh, and nuke the planet and protect them by turning them into batteries. Um, so, like, preserving the, so the Matrix is kind of like our tic tac toe, a continuously running tic tac toe. Which which reboots itself. Now mm. remember remember the matrix is frozen to the last point in time that it could it, it had recorded, which was the late nineties. Mm. So Joshua could have developed through to the late nineties, and then scorched the sky, as they said in, in the film. Okay, I could see that. If if the Matrix Four has like an Agent Smith like character named Joshua, then we'll know the, it's confirmed that it's. Uh, that this was always a prequel to the Matrix series. Uh, I liked how the agents in this film, the soldiers, were not men in black. Yeah. They they didn't hide. You know, it made us think that these are real people. Um, They're not enemies. They're not someone to be, you know, fought against. They have the, the license plate. It's a government you know, they, they had that close mm-hmm. above it. Like they're not hiding at all. This is, this is, this is, you know, people that are, are higher. There are soldiers. There are people that we work with. So they're, they, they did a good job of making them not anonymous. Yeah. They give tours to the public of what yeah, they're doing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Ali Sheedy in this movie. Cause we, we brought her up a couple of times, but um, this is like, this like Ali Sheedy, nineteen eighty three on a dirt bike. Like this is the coolest I've ever seen Ali Sheedy. Um, yeah, this was her I, big breakthrough role. Uh, I this is like before was of not, the movies. I know, like from go, I grew up in this like in in the eighties, and you know, like we both did. Um, and definitely, I knew a lot of people that had a big crush on Ali Sheedy. I never really got it, and I think it's because I never saw this movie. Like. I, I'm a hundred percent sure that if I had seen this mo- this movie as a kid, 
I absolutely would have had a thing for Ali Sheedy because she's so cool when she shows up on her dirt bike. Like the way that she just, she's like that kid in class that um, she gets an F and everything, but she's not dumb. Like she's not, and she's not even like rude to the teacher. She just doesn't really, she's not really into it. She's too cool. She's literally too cool for school. Yeah, this is the exact opposite character Ali Sheedy played in The Breakfast Club. Yeah, she's kind of this. That's this, a, yeah, this that's dark, a way to put it. brooding character, you know that that doesn't want to be talked to. That's not outgoing. Um, that doesn't you know that doesn't want to be carefree. That doesn't just go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, this is the exact opposite character, and she's so bubbly. She's so like yep. positive and bubbly and and happy in every scene. Like, wow, I, I want what you're having, Ali Sheedy, because like you, you're making me want to have fun here. Um, she she's running from location to location. Uh, she she's always. It, it turns out she's going to be on a television show. We find out that her mm-hmm. and her dance class are going to be the small television show. Uh, and that was what she was going to do before this this whole entire nuclear uh, war was going to happen. There is a moment. It's it's so odd, but it gives us a little bit of backdrop or backstory to Ali uh, Ali Sheedy's character Jennifer. Um, they're talking about Falcon and Joshua, and they're talking mm-hmm. about Fal- <clears throat> Falcon uh, dying, and uh, she she has this conversation about how old. Uh, Falcon was, and he was, he was 45 and mm. he's, and he says, Oh, uh, I'm trying to pick up the line here. Give me one second. I want to grab the exact line. Cause it's okay. so brilliant. Okay. Um, so David said, David says he wasn't very old and then, and, uh, Oh no. Ali Sheedy says he wasn't very old because he's looking at a picture of him. And David says, well, he was pretty old. He was 41. And then she goes, Oh yeah. He says, wow. Well, that is old. <laughs> like 41 being an old age. It's just one of those funny things that, that, uh, that a kid would say thinking about someone yeah. who's older, <clears throat> but then she has this really, really dark line. It's really, really, um, really deep. She says, dad was 45. I remember he was really sick and we, and then she says something and then David immediately cuts him off. Meaning that, you know, Allie's has this kind of tragic backstory to her as something happened with her father. Uh, and I, I, I'm so sad that they don't explore that more because it would have given a really, really interesting development to the character. Mm. Um, but they just abruptly cut it with David's line. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting character that, that Ali Sheedy has. Yeah, I like, I like what you said about how like she's always active. She's always like, positive there's a there's a bit where they are trying to get back to norad and and it's like they're at like the coast and they 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 could and she just says oh it's like three miles i could swim that we could just swim let's like that is that even if you're fast that's gonna take a couple hours (laughs) to swim three miles um so like i just thought that was really funny that she just like this is not an obstacle to her and then it leads to that really nice conversation where like that is kind of what breaks down David in the end. He's like, man, I never learned how to swim. That's one thing I always kept putting off because I assumed there was more time. You know, I was just going to do it someday. And now there won't be a someday. And it's like, that's what finally makes it real for him. Like what they're trying to prevent and what they're trying to do and, and what this, like what this, you know, what, what this, what this all could mean, like how, how all of this could just be gone. 
in a, and, and in a literal flash. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I love Ali Sheedy. I think she's great and such a, a different character than the other films that she is in, mm-hmm. um, particularly The Breakfast Club. But Matthew Broderick is definitely doing all the heavy lifting for this movie. Like, this is his big break as well. Like, this is the, one of his first movies where it really showcases what he can do. When he's mm-hmm. under the lights um, at at NORAD at the command center. And he's really, really fighting for his life. there, like trying to play with him. No, no, no. Your machine called me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Dabney Coleman looks at him second, like with a side eye, like what? Um, but he's really sweating in there and he's doing a good job of that. And then of course, the later on that scene that you mentioned where I never, you know, he never learned how to swim and, and everything. He's, he's definitely acting at a, at a different level than most child actors at that time. Uh, and, and it's not, you can see the seeds of Ferris Bueller, of course. Yeah. You know, the young kid alone in his room doing things that he probably shouldn't be. You know, it's very, very, very similar character. Um, but also the like world. using technology to, to dupe people and to, you know, like to, to play tricks. Yeah. He was just wanting to have fun with his computer and play games, mm-hmm. but it turned into so much more. When he's caught in this, in the kind of the locked door area in, mm-hmm. in the command center, he rummages through all the, it's a, I guess it's a medical room. Uh, like a nurse's station, he rummages through all the doors and and all, all the drawers and the cabinets. The door opens the doors and the cabinets and finds a tape recorder and turns into full MacGyver and takes apart the panel, short shorts out the circuit, records the I guess the pin pad combination somehow opens the door and yeah. then uh, makes it function so that it locks behind him. So they think he's still in there. Like he's a serious technical kid. Like he has some wild abilities later on he goes and, and shorts out the payphone and uh and makes with like a, a with like a can tab right right like just like a, a little piece of tab. aluminum yeah and makes a call now there was mm-hmm. a problem with payphones um throughout the history of early payphones all the way through the 90s where you could make free calls um the hackers talked about it in the movie hackers where you use a, a device that played a tone and it would mimic the sound of i guess uh, that would happen that would go through the line of of coins being dropped into the system so ah, really you could you could you could actually do something similar but the whole entire concept of actually shorting out the phone to get a dial tone that that's that's probably bunk. Of course, uh, I could be wrong. It looked cool on a movie. Bunk. It looked it, it looked believable it in a movie. Like I like I was like I I don't they're not going to explain exactly how he's doing this, but I can believe that like he would figure it out. And like the keypad thing with the walkie-talkie, it just it looked really cool and all of the pieces fit together in it where like yeah, yeah. I doubt that that could actually work, but um well, but right. it's it's cool to watch this like little, this like teenage MacGyver figuring these things out and using his available resources, it it make it like it makes him into such a like Kevin McAllister kind of or like or like a Ferris Bueller kind of character, where right. you know this- he's using all of his wits and he's only a kid, but he's using kid stuff to beat the adults where we've talked about this idea before when we talked about my, my science project. It's kids getting their nose into the business that shouldn't be theirs, and uh, he the characters navigating it with ease is so interesting. Um, This is of course copied with stranger things. Every character in stranger things turns into, into David from this movie uh, at at times. I love the moment 
with the guard that's guarding him when he's in that nurse's station, him and the nurse flirting and she's just not having it, mm-hmm. um, which was, gives him the opportunity to escape, you know, cause they're just, they're just so self-absorbed. Uh, he's so self-absorbed it, with the nurse. It also, it also lets us like, I had, I really had this thought, like it lets us not have to feel bad for that guard because whoever that is, that's supposed to be guarding him. They're going to get in trouble when he escapes. And like we see this guy being such a creep that we don't have to feel bad for this character that he's going to, you know, he might get demoted or court-martialed or, or something for letting the kid escape. Yeah. And he's not evil. You know, he's not, like, he's not evil. He's just a creep though. He's just a creep. So he, yeah, of course we're going to take advantage of him. You know, it's, it's a, it's a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. I think that those are all of my notes about the movie. Um, do you have any more, thoughts or questions or anything you want to say about war games 1983 well i love how there's uh characters in this film actors that appear from other films um you know Mm. uh the the two computer scientists that develop the computers very similar to uh the whopper they're talking about it one of them is is eugene from greece uh, yes. Uh, yes. Eddie Deason. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie Deason. One of my favorite yeah. character actors who did so many. If you look at his IMDb, he did so many iconic cartoon voices from our childhood. Yeah. And he goes, I'll tell you what, you know, right to the top, Falcon's Maze. Um, and I loved at one point, one of the generals that appears is the principal from Back to the Future. Uh huh. You can see him. He just stands out, you know, with his bald head. You know, he, he just shows up. Um, there, Strickland, a, is that his name? Principal Strickland. Principal Strickland. That's right. Yeah. Principal Strickland. Uh, th- this movie makes a point of of showing those those characters. Hmm. Um, I lo- oh, there's a dog, Jason. We always love a good sci-fi dog. Oh yeah. Oh, um, actually, and and here's like I don't think that the dog is just there, like. Like, for one thing, it does the thing you were describing earlier, where it shows humanity and it shows, like, some of our quirks and whatever. But it also, there's this running thing where um, David's parents are always yelling at him to make sure he puts the gar- the lids, He fa- make sure he fastens the lids on the garbage cans. Yep. Uh, and he doesn't later on, and the dog gets into them. And, yeah. like, it's a small thing, but that's kind of like a bit little metaphor for what this movie is. Like, the, the NORAD didn't put... The proper they didn't fasten the lids they didn't put protections and firewalls in place to prevent this hacker from getting in and he very easily tipped the can over and got in yeah it's a good metaphor for uh what is happening with the computer you mm-hmm. know um it, it, it's fantastic uh i i um i like how this film approaches the similar concept of 2001 a space odyssey of how mm. the supercomputer getting out of control and killing people without the death it's kind of like how is joshua but without the death you know we don't see people dying so it's a very accessible film for kids um that's probably why i, I, I could watch it over and over again they put it on tv so much um and and uh yeah i, I thought it does a good job of approaching you know that that kind of ethical standpoint of nuclear annihilation that you can understand i agree this movie had robots in it it had dinosaurs in it uh does one of them end up being cooler which which one is cooler jason robots or dinosaurs i think robots are cooler in this movie but i mean it doesn't really represent dinosaurs other than this very very like 
dark, depressive. They're going to, they all die eventually, which mm-hmm. is very, very sad. But, but the robots end up living in this film. Like it's Joshua stays alive. Um, you know, people in humanity coexist with it. Um, they learn from each other. Um, and I say that, you know, both ways, Joshua learns and people learns, uh, that, that, you know, that, that nuclear annihilation is, is not a good thing and we should, we should probably just avoid it. Um, it's a zero sum game. Uh, so definitely, uh, robots in the form of uh, computer AI, uh, are cooler in this film. Yeah, they almost annihilate us, but in the end, they save us. So yeah, the robots are robots are pretty great. Um, I actually, I just found out, I just looked this up in the trivia. Um, the movie that Professor Falcon is playing for them, it's not... So I assumed, like, my God, he spent a lot of money making this big production and, like, you know, made all these props or whatever. No, it's actually, it's the movie One Million Years B.C., from yeah. 1966, starring Raquel Welsh. Yeah, it's a Raquel uh, a movie Welsh that we movie, should, yeah. A movie we should probably cover on this podcast sometime, but because um, it looked pretty metal from, from just the clips that they showed. Yeah, the poster uh, of Raquel Welsh from that movie is the one that's on the on the wall in Shawshank Redemption. Oh, wow. Oh, cool, cool connection there. Okay. Yeah, so it, it's it's one of those those super sexy movies from the 60s that people always reference with Raquel Welsh because she's wearing like a, a, a loincloth bikini. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, but it's, I don't know. It's funny that like, that's what the scientist uses. To, yeah. That's, to this is, this is what, this is what he's been doing. Human technology. This is what he's been doing with the past 10 years. He's, he's been on an Island, you know, looking at Raquel Welsh dinosaur movies. And he has this line. He says, I need a paleontologist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he screams it out to the kids as they come to shore. I uh, love it. Wild. The other connection yeah, I, that we have to talk about this film is that the the Ready Player One connection is the, okay. the, the the pop culture nerd nerdcore book that came out you know over about ten years ago and then mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg made a movie out of it. Um, the original novel of the book, not the movie, the novel, the first key or Easter egg was obtained by playing the entire film out in a first person recreation. So you you entered the uh, the world the simulation by going to a gaming console in in the virtual world that's created in the book um, that that's kind of like a Galaga game except it's Falcon's Maze so it's an actual game de- designed as Falcon's Maze and then it leads you into a, a computer simulation of the entire film and you have to recreate all the events all the dialogue, all the actions, you know, as Matthew Broderick's character to earn the first Easter egg key, which is, which is really cool. I mean, as, as a kid, uh, I mean, Ernest Klein, who wrote the book, he's obviously a huge fan of this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. and I can see why he wanted to, you know, put that as the first key. It ties you right into this, this larger virtual simulation world, um, where you're trying to find patterns and things and Easter eggs. So, yeah, I think I think in the movie it ends up being just maze from maze for Atari, right? Because it had the first quote unquote um, Easter egg in a game. Yeah, and I think they turned it into instead of uh, they turned it to The Shining. That was the film mm-hmm. that they did. Like, and um, they were going to do a Steven Spielberg film. Steven Spielberg didn't want to wanted to didn't want to recreate his movies, so they did The Shining, and that's the, the couple of scenes that you have to go through. 
mm-hmm. but yeah, in the in the in the original book, it's the entire novel, uh, the entire um, film of of War Games, and you end it with that at the end of the movie. You know, you this computer ends and they shut down the 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 general tells them to stand down the, 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 the fighters, um, the computers flashing on the screen in the book, um, with the information about how to obtain the Easter egg. Um, and you, and you it was adventure, it. not maze for Atari. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. You should just let it be and have people write in with hate mail. Yes, please do. Yeah. Send in your <laughs> corrections and hate mail. Uh, tell tell us, tell us what you think is cooler robots or dinosaurs or Raquel Welsh, maybe. Yeah. There's a great line in the movie. Um, it says machines don't call people. Mm-hmm. I, I love that line. So, but, but people do. So definitely everyone email, call robots, be dinosaurs uh, to, with your hate mail. Yeah. It's a, unfortunately patently untrue because I get a call from a robot at least once a day about my <laughs> car's extended warranty or uh, the, the funniest one recently is like, a package of drugs was seized by U.S. Customs with your name on it, which, like, I don't think that's how drugs works. I don't think, like, my name would just be on a package of drugs. <laughs> uh, or, but what do I know? Um, <laughs> I also don't have a car, let alone an extended warranty. Uh, so, the, you know, <laughs> these robots are, they're, they're trying it, though. They're definitely trying it. They try to call. Um, this is Jason. this is the creation. This is what Josh has gone to next. So yeah. <laughs> he's he's been calling out looking for Falcon. Now he's now he's calling out saying, "Hey, we need to renew your extended warranty." And eventually, it, it turns into the Matrix. I guess pyramid it, schemes are all like a game, right? And in the end, they're it's form of a game. There's winners yeah. and losers. Yeah, uh, Jason. This is a section of the podcast that we call "What's Your Snack," Jason. What's your snack? Uh, it's always and will ever be popcorn. But mm-hmm. for this movie, I watched it in the morning, and I didn't. I didn't want to eat a big thing of popcorn in the morning. Okay. So I made myself some avocado toast, and I know that's very millennial cliche of me, but <laughs> but I had I had some avocado and I had some toast, and I just wanted to have something light, and that's what I ate. You had some avocado toast. You didn't get a mortgage uh, or buy a house. Um, what other What other things did you do? Uh, what other things that I do? What um, other like millennial things? Not buying a house, eating avocado toast. That's it, right? That's all we do. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm getting underpaid and, and overworked yeah. and, and, and have three gig jobs. So there yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, I, I need to, I need to grab the, the snack that I had. Cause it was, uh, I want to, give me one second. I'll be right back. Yeah. This was, um, Okay. Uh, (laughs) This is called the brand. I I didn't remember the brand name. The brand is Poppin' Popcorn. Um, (laughs) It was actually really, really good. It was this uh, ranch, like ranch popcorn. Um, My niece, unfortunately, by the time you hear this podcast, listeners, uh, my niece, my niece was like doing a fundraiser and that will have already been over. So I can't like direct you with a link to support her fundraiser. Sorry about that. But I bought this delicious pop and popcorn <laughs> from her fundraiser. Um, and it was it was really, really tasty. It's like just ranch powder on, on popcorn. It's exactly what it sounds like. And it was delicious. And it was my snack while I watched this movie. Delicious. 
Yeah. And then after that, uh, to have some like candy, I had a fruity cereal Kit Kat. Have you had this? Have you had this new Kit Kat flavor? I have not, but I, oh, I it's I'm, really good. I'm very curious about trying the raw corn, especially raw mm. corn buttered in, in a slice of bread. That's what I'm very cur- curious about trying. That should have been my snack. Yeah. As soon as I saw that, I was kind of like, oh, you know, that corn looks good. And then he bites it and it's raw. And I was like, that corn doesn't look that good. <laughs> Would you, uh, do you, do you have a preference for like raw corn versus I guess, boiled corn? Bake- How do you, what do you do like with corn? Like I'd be bake it or boil it. <laughs> Welcome to Robots Feet Dinosaurs for all your corn tips. <laughs> yeah. Follow us for more cooking tips. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like oh, I mean, I'm, I'm a big corn on the cob type guy I'm, I'm yeah. not a fan of just corn pieces um, unless I mean unless it's in chili or something but yeah okay okay I mean my, my favorite version of corn is when it's sheared off the cob and popped and covered in salt and butter um, but you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I don't have a microwave so didn't have access to that but I did have pop and popcorn that was already popped for me um, anyway Neither here nor there. More importantly, Jason, we got to get to our second bonus question. If we were to replace any two characters in war games with Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg, who would we replace? How would it improve the movie? Oh, see, I don't... uh, It's a tough one because Dabney Coleman would be great. Whoopi Goldberg. Um, she, she She could definitely... Uh, play that character well of of uh, grilling David, um, trying to you know feel him out whether he's a, a Russian sleeper agent, um, and uh, at the same time be kind of kind of compassionate and cool and understanding. You know when when he's just having to, trying to have fun. Um, I think Danny DeVito would have been a uh, uh, would have been a great um, General Berenger. Um, you know, replace the uh, the cigar smoking, chew eating general with Danny DeVito. Uh, especially is, yeah, especially when he's like on the phone with the president and and and, and uh, saying, "Oh no, no, sir, not you." Right. I like Danny DeVito as the science teacher um, okay. that he like kind of humiliates and and he gives him an F and like they they have like a little bit of like banter back and forth. Um, so I like putting Danny DeVito in that role for for the banter. Yeah, I can see that. It's kind of like Renaissance Man, where he plays the, t- the, the teacher. Mm. Has that and and Whoopi Goldberg. Mm, I kind I kind of like her as. Um, did you say Did you say McKittrick or did you say the other guy, the general McKittrick? Guy? McKittrick. McKittrick. Yeah, McKittrick's the guy that like programmed it. Dabney um, Coleman's character. Yeah, Dabney Coleman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I like Dabney Coleman, but um, I think I think that's where I want to put Whoopi Goldberg either. Uh, either as him or as Dr. Falcon. Um, I think just Whoopi Goldberg show like saying, I need a paleontologist and just talking about dinosaurs and showing a bunch of, a couple of kids of 1 million years BC to talk about like the extinction of dinosaurs. I just think that would be fun and delightful. Now would um, Whoopi Goldberg have the light English accent as well? Yes, absolutely. And she could, I think she could pull it off. Maybe mm-hmm. like get her a vocal coach or something. Um, all right, awesome. So I think that is I think that is everything about war games. They're starting to do instruct uh, con- some construction right outside my apartment, so that's probably a good time to wrap up. That's going to become unbearable noise. That's Joshua and the machines taking over behind you, so you have to really watch your back. 
Yeah, they're telling us, basically telling us to wrap it up because we got to get plugged into the battery machines and have goo uh, surrounding us in a pod. Um, so I'm going to get back to that. Jason, are you going to get back to your goo pod? Yeah, I'm going to leave you all with a, a, one of Stephen Falcon's conclusions. Mm, um, perfect. And, and, and that is his line. Nature knows when to give up. And we should, too, and end the show right now. <laughs> and that is where we will end it. computer is not going to just urinate in the bunker. We need people to write in with hate mail. Hey there, robo fans and dino fans. Do you like science fiction? Do you like movies about robots and dinosaurs? Do you like podcasts that explore sci-fi philosophy through a fun and positive lens? Then you are going to love Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Every week, your host, Louis G, invites a guest onto the show to talk about one of their favorite sci-fi movies. It's a robocast. It's a dino cast. It's a battle for ultimate awesomeness in science fiction pop culture. Subscribe to Robots vs. Dinosaurs on Apple Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Friday. Follow us on Instagram at Robos v. Dinos or Twitter at Versus Robots. That is at VS Robots.